Luke chapter 1, verse 39. We're going to go all the way through verse 56. Um, though I will warn you that next week we are going to pick up in Mary's song again. So you're going to get two weeks on Mary's song here. Uh, but we're going to start in verse 39. We're going to go all the way through to verse 36 and just um, delight in the celebration of Christ and his Annunciation. So let's read together verse 39 through 56. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, into the town, into a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it, why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on his humble on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud thoughts of their hearts the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. May God add his bless blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. This is a truly beautiful passage. Just a wonderful text to engage. And I just, I want to uh, start by talking about good. The word good. And you've heard me say it the last couple weeks that, that man tends to exaggerate and speak in hyperbole. You know, Fantastic, amazing, incredible. Uh, God tends to say good. And he tends to leave it at that. It's just good. It's, it's a good thing. Tov is the Hebrew word. And we see it. God sees it's good, says it's good, and it is good. That's how good is established. God sees it. He says it. And it's declared good. That's how good is established. It's not established by our own recognition. We don't see things as good, say they're good, and then they're good. When we see things as good and say things are good, they're not good. But we find the definition of good 
and God's proclamation and His Word, the good Word, good. God sees something as good, says it's good, and it's, not, and it's good, right? Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God puts man in the garden and He sees that the garden is good, he sees that the world he's made is good, and he puts man in the garden, and he sees man, and he says, low tov, not good, because man is alone. It is not good for man to be alone. This is not a good thing. Man should not be alone. Man should be with God. So he says, low tov, this is not good. And for the rest of the Old Testament, we're trying to get back to good. For the rest of the Old Testament, we are pushing to get back to that which is good. This is, this is the struggle that we see all through the Old Testament. In fact, uh, you see it constantly mentioned when it says something was right in their eyes. That's the word tov in their eyes. It's right in their sight, good in their sight. This is a direct reference to the way God establishes what is good. He sees it's good and says it's good and therefore it's good. And then you'll see that you'll see things like he declared it as right or he said this was right. Samson sees a Philistine woman and he sees that she is good to the eyes. And he declares that she will be his. He is seeing what he thinks is good, and he is saying what he thinks is good, and trying to declare it as good. And if you've read the story of Samson, that goes really bad. That goes really, really badly. Samson ends up destroying Israel. And yes, the Lord takes him and redeems and rescues, because the Lord's goodness cannot be outweighed, be outdone by man's sinfulness. Yet, Samson is this extreme example at the end of the book of Judges, right before the Civil War, that shows you that man cannot declare what is good on his own. He needs God to do it. So we're getting back to good. We're getting back to that which is good. And then the Messiah comes, so you go all the way through the Old Testament, and you come to Malachi, the last prophet. Um, and in the, in the Christian Bible, you've got the last prophet, and he is calling for repentance of the people. He's pointing out that the priests have been wicked, and he's saying, repent and trust in the Lord, turn back to Him, bring the things back to Him that are His, and He ends there, waiting for a Messiah. Now the Hebrew Bible ends, just to be clear, the Hebrew Bible ends with Ezra and Nehemiah. That's one book in Hebrew, by the way. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Uh, it's intended to be read straight through Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and what you have in Ezra and Nehemiah is a restoration of the priesthood, a restoration of the worship of God, and a restoration of the city of Jerusalem, with the walls being rebuilt, the temple being put back up, the worship being put back in place, and they await a Messiah. They await the king. They've got the walls, they've got the city, they've got the temple, they've got the people, they've got the word, they've got the scripture. And yet, they still lack the king. And so as we read in the book of Luke, right, that, that they are apparently ready. They look ready, but when we read Zechariah's story, we saw that they're doing this duty, dutiful worship over and over, and it's kind of a, a just there. 
I don't even know what to call it. It's not apathetic. It's not, it's not overwhelmingly zealous, but they're, they're just doing their duty. They're coming to worship God and they're, they're laying their prayers out before the Lord. And they're, they're sincere, but they're just kind of monotonous and repetitious. And then you have a king on the throne, Herod the Great. But then you start to realize, oh, Herod put up high places and, and he put up pagan worship everywhere. And he's really a puppet for Rome anyway. And he's not so great a king. And so this isn't the Messiah. This isn't the king. And so you've got a corrupt uh, political system. You've got an oppressive Roman government. And you've got a uh, priesthood that is so broken that... God decides not to show up to the high priest, but instead to a lowly uh, priest on his normal rounds. Not even the one that's invited into the Holy of Holies, but the one who's been tasked to take the incense to the incense altar. A holy endeavor, yes. But amidst the prayers of the saints, he's given this kind of menial task to lay the incense at the incense altar, pray a few prayers, come out and pray the benediction over the people and then go home. It's not the bread of the presence. He's not laying down the sacrifices and doing the, the altar sacrifices. He's just a normal guy, a normal priest doing his normal duty, and he is told that he has to be silent. As, is, as God has been to Israel for 400 years, so he must be silent for about a year. And so he goes home and his wife bears a, becomes pregnant. Um, she is past the age of childbearing, as indicated in the text. And he is old himself, and she has been barren. And God decides that she is going to bear John, the baptizer, not the Baptist, the baptizer. She's going to bear John, the baptizer, and he is going to uh, herald the way for the king. And then Jesus picks up where... God picks up with Mary next in the story and shows us that he loves this ordinary girl, ordinary person, and he decides to show himself to this ordinary woman who is betrothed, and she's a teenager. She's not that old, and her husband is, is not yet even her husband, and she has not been with a man, and God says, guess what, you're pregnant, and it's the Son of God. And she goes, oh. And remember, she turns to the Lord and says, let it be as you would say. Let it be. Um, I'm your servant. I'm your slave is the Hebrew, is the Greek word there. I'm your servant, your bond servant or your slave. And so we pick up in the text where we are and we are getting back to good. We've been in fantastic world, right? The, the temple looks great at this time period. It looks beautiful. The walls are up. King Herod is wealthy and Judah is economically successful for the first time in hundreds of years. And they are doing well. But we're getting back to good. So in those days, verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. I love that it doesn't even tell you the town. These people are so ordinary. The town's not even recorded. It's a town in Judah somewhere. It's, it's over there, right? It's so small. It's like 
saying, where'd you go? You said, I went to Houston and you meant Brazoria because nobody knows where Brazoria is, right? My mother came to visit last week. She has to tell people my son lives in Houston because if she tells them that I live in Brazoria or Lake Jackson or any, or any of those, any of the towns around here, they look at her like she's got three heads. Where's that? What's that? And so she has to go. He lives about an hour south of Houston. Oh, okay. I know where that is. That's where all the hurricanes hit. And we, yeah, that's right. And so the, this is same, right? She goes to the hill country to a town in Judah. I love that there's no mention of the town. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary is seeking celebration. I want you to understand she's not going for proof. She believed God. When God said that she was going to have a child, and she said, how is this going to be? And he said, look, Elizabeth is going to have a child too. She went, whoa! And she went to go visit Elizabeth because she's like, we're both having children. It's so exciting, right? She's excited for this, right? And there's this delight and this joy, and it's not to find proof, it's to celebrate. Mary goes in haste to celebrate with Elizabeth. And there's this reality here that we can see that when somebody else sees the Messiah or or knows that God is moving, we celebrate when we come together. You see, Elizabeth knows that God is moving. Mary knows that God is moving. But the rest of the world doesn't. The whole world is concerned with fantastic. And yet Mary and Elizabeth both know good. They both know what good is. And they are excited. In the same way when we meet a Christian who believes in Jesus and lives out the Christian life and and we meet them, we know what good is and it's exciting to go celebrate with them. We find joy in celebrating with each other when we encounter God. When we see God, we find joy in celebrating with each other. And Elizabeth and Zechariah live in the hill country away from public eyes. Right? Both of them live in the hill country. They are out away from Jerusalem. This is not a prominent city. This is an obscurity. They're off by themselves. And Mary goes to visit in order to separate, in order to celebrate with somebody who knows what it's like. The world is so noisy here sometimes. And it's easy to to drown out what God is doing in our heads and in our minds with the clutter of this world. It's easy to end up being confused or overwhelmed by the noise of this life. It's easy. And yet, and yet, It is so powerfully true that God can move and rescue and change and redeem. It's easy for us to think that God is being silent. But in His silence, often He is bringing into life and birthing life into this existence that we live. Often in the silence... He is moving even though we don't see it. Apparent silence from God does not mean idleness. It does not mean that He's not moving. It simply means that you don't see it. He is moving. 
Oh, he's moving. And he is always moving. So she comes and here in verse 41, look at verse 41 and verse 42. It says, I mean, in verse 44. So we're going to read 41 and then jump to verse 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Jump down to 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting, Elizabeth says to her, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Leapt for joy. This baby in the womb recognizes the Messiah. In the other womb. If this is not an argument for life at conception, I don't know what is. These babies are communicating in the womb. Now, I have to be honest. I don't think that John the baptizer remembered at age 30 that he jumped in the womb. So the argument that you don't remember being in the womb, is goofy. Evidently, children in the womb can recognize the Messiah, which is amazing. It's amazing that God can move life so much. This is life at conception. So we pray every week that abortion would end. This is part of the reason. Because life begins at conception. We see it. Indeed, I would argue that life actually began before conception because God says you were there before time began. Life begins. He, children are alive in the womb and here we see the praise of God coming from a child that is not yet even fully formed in the womb. A child that is not yet even fully formed in the womb is capable of praising the Messiah. He leaps in the mother's womb. The forerunner here knows that he just has to wait a little bit longer. So, so imagine, I know it's hard to put yourself in John, John the Baptizer's position at this point. I know, but try. Just think about it. You have no, everything sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Right? Everything sounds like that. Everything sounds like that. You, you have no conception of light. You're in a fluid mixture, and you hear, and you go, that's my Lord! And you jump and celebrate. I would argue that this is the way it is when we get it. When we understand good as opposed to fantastic. When we understand the Lord is moving and redeeming. It is hard for us not to cheer and yell. And I don't know if you... I used to go to these big conferences and I'd take teenagers with me. And teenagers are awful. Um, I, I, no, I'm kidding. Teenagers are wonderful. Um, most of them. Some of them. So you've got this you know, line of teenagers. And I just want you to imagine. We've got this... I'm standing there, and 
I'm the pastor of these teenagers, and there's maybe, I don't know, anywhere from 60 to 14. I've been in both. and so, But the room is packed with, with people, all students, all singing. It's beautiful. Everybody's singing praises to God. And then you look around at one point, and they're singing this one song, and you get so fired up because it sounds like the voices of heaven, and there's this the, the music crescendos and then drops to the silence, right? And you go, yeah! And the rest of the room is quiet. And you're that guy. I can't tell you how many times that happened to me. The music would crescendo and you'd be singing and you just felt the presence of angels singing their praises to God and the, it would just drop because for a dramatic effect, it would just drop and all the students would... And you, not knowing any better, not realizing that this was the time when you're supposed to be quiet for dramatic effect, would throw the band off. Because <laughs> you'd scream at the top of your lungs. That's, that's what's going on here. The world around them has been echoing worship like it's supposed to. The world around them, in, in the previous chapter, all the people were gathered doing their customary duty and singing the songs, and then it drops, and they're supposed to be quiet. But John recognizes that there's something going on, and he can't hold it in. And he goes, yeah! And everybody else is confused. Now just, when we do this, when we scream like that, when we get excited over something, I want to prepare you. The world is going to look at you weird. All my teenagers looked at me like, what is he doing? And then there's the one or two that understand, but they were following the crowd. You know, they were doing what they're supposed to do. There's one or two that understand, and they're like, wish I had screamed. <laughs> Then there's the one that thinks you're cool, the one student in any youth group that ever thinks the youth pastor is cool. There's always only one, no one else. And they're, they're like, bruh, I want to be like you when I get older, right? And they, they have to move their head this way because they cut their hair so it covers their face. Just, bruh. You know, and so I have, I have a lot of great stories about you. So they, they, they have to turn their head sideways. And, and they're there, and they've turned their head, but in that moment when the world around us has followed the crescendo of religious practice and has dropped off to silence and we scream and it's awkward and uncomfortable and you're sharing with the guy at the grocery store about Jesus Christ while he's just trying to get Cheetos or something ridiculous and, and you feel awkward, know this, that that is good. It's not fantastic. It's not amazing. It's not magnificent. It is good. It is good. It is the good word of God. It is good. We're getting back to good when we begin to praise and scream when everyone else is quiet. We're getting back to good when the world looks at us and goes, he left in his mother's womb because he's a weirdo. That's good. It's good. Elizabeth then testifies here of the Lord. Jump up to verse 41 again. Halfway through. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So she sees 
Mary comes in, Mary greets her, and she becomes filled with the Holy Spirit, and the baby leaps in the womb, and she gets excited, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she says this, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, we're getting back to good. There's two words in the New Testament that are frequently used for blessing, or blessed. Or blessed, however you want to say it. blessed, I guess it's King James, right? So blessed, blessed, blessed are you, right? The first one is makarios, and we've talked a lot about that. That's used in the gospel a lot, and it's the word for happiness. It's the word for happiness. So we read, happy are you when others persecute you and revile you. It's this word happiness, and just let's clear this up. It means happy. Translators don't want to translate it happy because it's uncomfortable to say that Christians, you're supposed to be happy. But the reality is Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet. Why? Because we have overcome death. Are you kidding me? No one's allowed to be happier than us. It's one of my great arguments for studying the Bible. People tell me I don't have time and I go, well, I'm happier than you are. I don't have time either, but I'm happier because I study this book and I, and I read this New Testament and I see this Jesus who transformed me. I'm happier, so blessed is happy. There's a second word used, and that's the one that's used here, the second word, which is eulogos. Eulogia, I can't say it in Greek, but it's good word. The good word. This is a good word. I told you we're getting back to good, right? The world is yelling, this is fantastic, it's amazing, look at our buildings. And God is saying, this is a good word. This is good. This is being declared by God as good. And she exclaims with a loud cry, this is a good word. You are a, you are a good word. Blessed, good word are you among women. This is a good word. Your existence, Mary, and this baby in your stomach is a good word. It is God restoring Tov, restoring that which is good in this world. This is good. And then she says, and good word, a good word is the fruit of your womb. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman crushed the head of the snake. Right here. This is a good word. This is good. We're getting back to good. God calls her good. God sees her and declares her good. God sees Jesus and declares him good. Indeed, Jesus is the definition of good. He is the definition of tov, restoration of what we are supposed to have in the garden with God. The restoring of Sabbath rest with God is in Jesus Christ, and we have good with that which is good. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Good word. This is a good word. He is the restorer of that which is good. And then in verse 43, she recognizes Elizabeth making this declaration that this is a good word, that God is restoring that which is good. She then confesses that she is not worthy of this. 
Look at this in verse 43. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She says, why do I get this? Why do I get this gift of you coming to visit me? I live in the hill country in a town in Judah. Nobody knows where my town is. I'm obscure. I'm not famous. No one cares that I'm out here in the middle. I'm an old woman who's barren and is now going to have a child. And nobody is beating down my door to find that out. And she stands here and declares this is a good word. She recognizes her own unworthiness. Now let's be clear. It's not Mary that she feels unworthy of, but my Lord that she feels unworthy of. How is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? You see, it's not, she's not venerating Mary here. Let's be clear. This is not a veneration or exaltation of Mary. Mary is just her cousin. But she's venerating the Lord in her womb. Mary is the vessel that is carrying Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The emphasis here is the my Lord, not, not merely, not merely the, the mother. So he emphasizes my Lord. We will find greater value in each other individually as we seek to know the Lord more closely. You see, Elizabeth finds value in Mary coming to visit because she is with the Lord. The Lord is in her. And so the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth in the presence of the Lord. Likewise, as we, as we individually seek to know the Lord closely and seek to grow in the Lord personally, when we come in contact with one another, we bring the Lord to each other. And we get to rejoice in that. And we get to say, how is it that I get to be around these people who love Jesus so much and know him so intimately? How is it? Jesus meets with Elizabeth here in the hill country, and she knows she's unworthy. Yet, he comes to her. Let's acknowledge that this is something Jesus does quite often. He comes to her. He comes to me. He comes to you. He comes to us. And He comes to where we are, that we would know Him, and know Him intimately and personally, and there is nothing required of us except that we are here and present. He knows. He comes. And He meets with us. Then, in verse 45, we have this phrase, this last uh, praise from the daughter of the previous covenant, right? The Old Testament daughter. She's uh, G. Campbell Morgan puts Elizabeth this way. He says, Elizabeth is the last daughter of the old economy and is the first to sing praise in the new one. Isn't that beautiful? She's the last daughter of the old economy and is the first to sing praise in the new one. She then ends her praise here with verse 45. And blessed 
Is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what it was spoken to her from the Lord? Okay, translation issue. This is Makarios, right? Happy. The two words above, different word, different meaning, different altogether. And this word is happy. So just a side note, when you read your Bible, there are lots of tools that you can use to see what the translations mean. Sometimes there are translations that avoid certain words for various reasons. Translators have their reasons. Often they are godly reasons. Sometimes they are not. Sometimes they are just academic reasons. And the reason that most people, most translators avoid the word happy in the New Testament is because they don't want to get into the theological fight of Christians are supposed to be happy. And they're pushing against that. Listen. I've got lots of tools for people at Sovereign Grace Fellowship that you can click on a word. You, we've all got phones now. You can click on a word with these tools and it will bring up which word it is. And you can see what the word means for yourself. Read the Bible for all it's worth. Read it for all it's worth. Soak it up. Take as much as you can out of it. Struggle to grasp every nuanced word. It's a delight to you. And it's a joy. And we've got the tools at our hands. You, you are living in a time period, in an age when you have more tools at your disposal than anyone has ever had in history to understand and grasp the Bible. I can do a Bible word study that would have taken Matthew Henry years to do in a matter of seconds by typing in the word and going, ding, and then it pops up with a thousand references. I don't even have to read all the references. I can hit audio, and it'll read it to me. This is so easy. And yet, in our society, in our world, one of the things we need to pray against, our society, in our world, in our modern church culture, we are some of the most biblically illiterate people in history, which is a shame and a tragedy. So, that's neither here nor there. Let's move forward. So he, she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So there's a question here as to whether or not she's talking about herself or Mary. And the answer theologically is yes. She's talking about both Mary and herself. Blessed, happy is the one who believed that this promise would be fulfilled. Now she's talking about both because remember Zachariah's name, the Lord has promised and Elizabeth's name, God keeps it, right? God keeps his promises. So we, we see this, we see them combining and they give grace. And grace is John's name. John is called Grace. That's his name. And so God keeps his promise of grace to people. And she says, happy is the one who believed that there would be a fulfillment of that which was spoken to her from the Lord. So she says, we are happy people. We are joyful because the promises of God have been fulfilled and they've been made known on this earth. And now God is speaking in a hill country in Judah away from prying eyes. So I want you just for a moment to imagine you live in the hill country of Judah away from prying eyes, much like where we live now. People, I think Brazoria was on the map uh, internationally recently because Lake Jackson had a brain-eating amoeba in the water. 
And so it came up, Brazoria County. People are dying. It, no. One, and it's tragic, and we're sad. Brain-eating flesh amoeba made international news. I got a call from London. Are you guys okay? Can you drink water? I was like, yeah, man, chill. That's over, one town over. Okay. Yeah. This is made international news. The Guardian newspaper reported that Brazoria, Texas, Brazoria County, Texas, everybody's dying because of brain-eating amoeba. And I was like, it's one kid, and it was tragic, and it was scary, and everybody shut down the water system, and we stopped drinking the water for a little bit. Now we're back up and running, man. It didn't take that long. We cleaned it out. So we're good. And he, uh, you know, my friend, okay, good. Oh, oh, good. I was afraid everybody was dying. So you don't know anybody here. Just me. Like, you're, you're afraid I'm dying, right? Like, it's me that you're worried about, right? Not just everybody. Like, don't blanket. He was like, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's tragic. Yeah, it is tragic. So he, um, he, he, he calls this panic, right? And, and there's obscurity here. We live in the middle of nowhere. Just like the, the brain-eating brain amoeba and the time that we tried to ban the N-word in Brazoria, Texas, that made international news as well. It was weird. Um, the mayor decided he wanted to do something political and tried to ban a bad word. And the, it made international news. And so th this is kind of where Elizabeth and Zachariah live. They live in a place that nobody knows about, and the only time that anybody's ever going to know about them is if there's some fantastical, magnificent, weird thing happening. But God is getting back to good. And good often begins in silent obscurity. Good for us often begins in our private studies away from prying eyes. Good for us often begins in a relationship that is had, that is built in quiet. Good for us often begins in obscurity. God is getting back to good, and we are seeing it even in our own day, where you find echoes of God's goodness and mercy in the most obscure places. You find answers to prayer where nobody's going to report them. Nobody's going to report the prayers. Nobody's going to report the successes. Nobody's going to report the healing from disease and death. Nobody's going to report the miraculous because it's just not fantastic enough. It's just good. Nobody's going to report the, the person who overcomes addiction because he has found Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to report the marriages that get... Uh, that, that explode in joy because they have found unity in Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to report those things because God is working good often in obscurity. This is good. And those of us who see it, those of us who see God moving in obscurity, we are happy. We are happy. We are happy in our simplicity and in our place. So let's conclude this morning just by singing the song with Mary. 
Mary said in response to Elizabeth, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me happy. For he who is mighty has done a great thing, and holy is his name. She says, God who is mighty has done this great thing. Holy is his name. And then out of this holiness, what follows is what results from his holy presence. So let's look at it. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is in direct contrast to that phrase in the Old Testament, I will deliver punishment on their sin from generation to generation. It says his mercy, his mercy is for those is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought them down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He is flipping the wicked economy of the world. He is flipping the wicked economy of the world that puts the rich and exalted and prideful and arrogant on top and the poor and lowly and humble and lame on the bottom. He is flipping that and honoring those who are broken and at the bottom. And we're going to see it all through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see God honoring those who are broken and weak and frail at the bottom. He's going to be honoring them and rescuing them and redeeming them. And those who are at the top, he's going to reprove and say, get away. He's going to call them whitewashed tombs. He's going to call them vipers. At one point, John the Baptist is going to say, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And God is flipping the old economy Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So she stays there at the beginning of her pregnancy with Elizabeth and delights in worshiping alongside somebody else who knows what's going on in their obscure silence in the world in remembering that God fulfills His promises to get back to good. So God fulfills His promises from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 to get back to good, to bring back Sabbath rest for those who would trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. He brings Sabbath rest and peace and good. It is good. 